Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is a Dude Studios production. And hey, I'm the Dude. Country Wine and Spirits is the number one online source for wine and spirits, offering over 3,000 products. You won't find a better selection of spirits and wines anywhere else. You can order everything from the most popular brands to some brands out there that you may not know of, but you should definitely try. They also have gift boxes for those special occasions that are coming up. To check out Country Wine and Spirits and go find that perfect spirit for yourself, go to cwspirits.com. And when you check out, use coupon code HEYBARTENDER5 and get 5% off your entire order. That's cwspirits.com, coupon code HEYBARTENDER5 for 5% off. Hello, this is Neil Strachan here from the Balvenie Distillery, and welcome to Hey Bartender Podcast. Hey bartender, pass me a drink. The reason that I'm here is I need time to think. All the ways of the world have really got me down. Neil Strachan, thank you so much for joining me on Hey Bartender Podcast. How are you doing today? Exactly. Well, all the best. It's just here being, uh, being, being here speaking to you. Oh, that's cool. Thank you so much. I appreciate you joining us. Now, you are an ambassador for uh, Balvini Scotch? Uh, yep. Uh, I, I represent the fine people that make our whiskey in Dufton in, uh, in the northeast of Scotland. So, yes, from, from the Balvini distillery. And you, you've actually got the Scottish uh, uh, dialect, so this is this is way cool for me. So. <laughs> Oh man, I, act, acting school in uh, acting school in LA has been great for my accent. Nah, only joking. I'm from <laughs> I'm from over I'm from over the hill from the distillery. So, uh, Geeside, just uh, most famous for the Queen's uh, summer home, and spent spent a lot of time up there in Geeside. Right, as of right now, I'm told you uh, that you're uh, hanging out in LA right now. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the distillery have me based out in uh, Los Angeles, and I cover the west side of the. Uh, yeah, the country now. So from here to Nashville, up to uh, Seattle, I've got a nice wide territory. Yeah, sounds like it. So we'll get into Balvenia a little bit later, but uh, let's talk a little bit about your past before we get really into that. So you have been a bartender. You've worked in the hospitality industry. Yeah, from um, probably about the age of nine years old, I was working in a bar of some description. My best friend's father's uh, business is, is owning and running bars. So when he had to look after us, we had to empty out and fill the cigarette machine, do the you know count uh, the money in the pool table. There was a load of gaming machines back in those days, so there was always something for us to do. And then as it progressed, I kept on working and doing bits and pieces for him, and ended up as one of his managers at one point. So, yeah, so- an early start. Yeah, it sounds like you have an early start. Now, when it comes to being able to serve here in America, you can serve alcohol when you're 18 years old, but you can't pour it or anything like that. 
uh, you can't pour it until you turn 21. Is that the same law over in Scotland or is it a little different over there? No, absolutely not. Um, you sh- you have to be 18 years old to pour out, like to serve alcohol, to work in a bar. So the alcohol age is all revolved around 18 years old. Um, however, I was pouring pints long before then. <laughs> I was behind the bar um, before then. So I, it, it was fortunate that I worked for a friend's father or was helping a friend and their life was in a bar. So I understood how to pour a pint pretty early on. Is the uh, drinking age 21 over there still? Just It's never been 21. Always 18. Oh, oh, eight. like, as, as, as long as I've been around. America is really the only place in the world, I think, that served start people start at 21. Oh, okay. By still, I meant like you just said, it, as you know, in, in America, the drinking age is 21, but you said uh, it's 18 in Scotland. Yeah, yes, definitely in Scotland. And I, I don't know if I've ever been anywhere that isn't 18 or below for the alcohol drinking age. I think it's a re- I can only really think of America that starts that late. Now, usually when I start off this show, I have the, my guests give us a drink special for the show. Now, since we're talking about Belvini scotch today, uh, is there a particular way that you like to serve it? With good company. That's the only way With to do it? With good company. Yeah, I think, you know, gone are the days when some some snobby Scotsman has to be telling you, oh, you shouldn't drink your whiskey with ice or you can't mix it with Coke. Who cares what you do with it as long as you're drinking it in good company and you can essentially afford the bottles that you're drinking, it's all good. But, you know, it, it really depends on what you're doing. If we're sitting enjoying a drink together and, and, and you know, not analyzing the whiskey, it's just there for social lubrication. You can drink it however you want. Ice is going to numb the flavors. But if you're somewhere hot and summery, ice makes sense. I personally don't drink any uh, ice. In, well, don't drink whiskey with ice. I think it's horrible. But that's not to say that on a hot day or when you're living in LA or Singapore, where I used to live, that people aren't wanting a cool drink. And whiskey does that for them. I always, I've always kind of drank my Balvenny straight. Um, possibly with a little drop of water in it. Sometimes when it becomes a little bit fiery, mm. <laughs> different days the alcohol shows itself in different ways. Um, but other than that, you know, it, for me, it's really drink whiskey with good company. That's the best way to drink it. That's uh, That should be the rule of on life, actually. <laughs> Just you know, do what you want as long as you're with good company, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, but over the years, certainly the, the the stories and how whiskey's kind of pulled on people's heartstrings, whiskey and certainly single malt scotches have defined people's moments and times in their lives. Whether it was fun camping trips or times with an uncle that might be deceased, um, some amazing stories I've heard by uh, by the people that have had whiskey, that have had fun with whiskey. Sure. So tell me a little bit about the bar life uh, when you first started. Now, like I talked to you before, I don't want to encourage any Scottish stereotypes or anything like that. I I don't want to be disrespectful because I do have listeners in Scotland. But tell me, uh, you've been all over the world. Now, let's just compare America, American bars to Scottish bars for the way you remember, at least. Uh, Well, you said you're going on your holiday in the next week. Is there like a dip, different atmosphere or is the clientele different? The whole thing is a little bit different. Like, and, and firing straight into a Scottish stereotype, especially when you're from the Northeast like I am, 
is we're tight. You know, expanded money, the tipping culture in America is so crazy in my eyes that if I was a bartender in America when I was growing up, I'd be so wealthy right now. Like really? the money, the money that you guys make in tips is like, you know, I always remember a great friend of mine when I started working in a cocktail bar and just before he left, we had a bet. Whoever made the most tips in that month took the other person's tips for the whole month. That's a lot of money. <laughs> well, not in Scotland. It's oh. not really because nobody's giving you a great deal of tips. So collectively in one of the best bar, like cocktail bars in Aberdeen, uh, where, I was, uh, where I was from, I think for a month, I beat David with like 390 pounds worth for a whole month. I was doing private cocktail lessons in between that. You know, your Saturday nights, you're not walking out of the bar with a grand in your pocket. If you made like 30 pounds, you were, you felt you were like a millionaire by the end (laughs) of the night. Um, Very, very different. You know, consumers all over the world, they are what they are, I think. With the amount of different bars that I drink in, there's certainly characters that you find in Scottish bars that you probably don't find anywhere else in the world. But other than that, there is, you know, if you spend long enough in a certain type of bar in America, you will see a lot of resemblances on what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) Just because I was watching a YouTube video a while back with Karen Gillian, Uh, she was in Doctor Who, she was Jumanji, famous actress. She was speaking, uh, she's Scottish, and she did this video for some uh, company, and she spoke Gaelic. And, you know, she was doing, and it had a translation by it. Is that a more common, uh, more common to hear around there than uh, English, or? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> absolutely not. Nobody, nobody speaks uh, Gaelic. Well, there, there is certain, there's some people, but one of these tourist things that they put the uh, they put the names on signposts around Scotland, but there's not a great deal of people that speak it. And and certainly from where I'm from in the northeast of Scotland, the other side of the country from where it's spoken, we don't really care that much for it. <laughs> and, and in the northeast of Scotland, I think we're more proud of uh, uh, speaking Doric than um, anything else. And. And, and certainly the, the people up at the distillery and the, the people that make the whiskey and some of the old timers, they're speaking Doric, mm. which is is very, very difficult thing to describe. I need probably half a bottle of whiskey in my, uh, <laughs> down my throat before it really starts coming out smoothly. And, and a lot of it's also what I've found with certainly working with my friend who's a farmer and being out and about in the countryside. A lot of it's punctuated by F's and C's, so it's not ideal for a podcast for me to get in, uh, start doing my Doric impression. <laughs> well, that's totally understandable, but I was just overly. But I think. Go, please go ahead. But, I, but yeah, no, no, but I should say, you know, that there's so much like, although we don't, uh, it's not something that's from the northeast. So much of what Scotland is, and if you look into the of what these Gaelic words mean, there's some beautiful kind of descriptors and meanings um, from just just from kind of trying to say them and names of mountains and lochs that are named after them. Some quite quite nice names when you look into it. Yeah, it, I suppose it'd be kind of like uh, here in America because you go 
one side of America, they speak a certain dialect. The other side of America, another kind of dialect, south and, and north. So, yeah, because not everybody speaks like John Wayne out here or not everybody speaks <laughs> like Al Pacino, you know. <laughs> but but, I, but I, I think, you know, the youth of today are probably just, they, they don't have access to it. You know, the school I went to taught Gaelic, but, there was about four kids that went to it, you know, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So the tipping and the, uh, so you got paid hourly then when you were a certain. Oh yeah. Um, well, so- well, until I got into, I was in management quite early and then it was salaried. So there wasn't really as many hours getting done. So it seems to be a big thing in America about the whole tipping policy. It's well, policy is a strong word to use it because a lot of the servers around here, they get paid minimum wage, if they're lucky, there are some, a lot of uh, companies in the East coast that don't even give an hourly wage. They just say what you make in tips. That's what, that's what you make. But I've been uh, with this help of this podcast. I've been learning that all the other countries, it's not the same thing. Like in Japan, it's actually an insult to leave a tip. Um, oh, that uh, uh, Adam, who I had on the show a couple of years back, he told me, he didn't really make tips, but people would give him money and he put up a tally on a chalkboard and that, and he had, uh, and that would be, if he go, goes in there, just erase one of those tallies, he gets a drink and the customer's already paid for it. It's like drink credit. And yeah, that it wasn't really like, uh, I bought a beer. Here's a dollar. Yeah. That sort of thing. Uh, was that basically the same for you? Um, yes. Yeah. Like, you know what if if certain individual like say say working my friend's father's bar uh get yourself a drink and there'd be a single pound coin slid over and and you know that was like that was your christmas present almost it was like well done thanks for looking after me here's a pound and it'd just be this coin it wasn't notes that were flying around so yeah like on midweek like and that would be only at the weekend like your midweek drinkers were not tipping either. So yeah, you got your wage and the luckily, luckily things are, it costs of living is a lot less in the UK, you know, for accommodation, the food prices are just so, so much cheaper that you don't really need to be earning the big money like people do in bars to survive. Like in comparison to averaging to here, you know, the price of rent, it's so crazy that, you know, bartenders need to be making that money here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The cost of living uh, is getting kind of high. And plus you've noticed the gas prices around here uh, a little bit on the high side right now. So hey, it's a lot cheaper than in the UK. It is a it? lot. Like the, the cost of fuel for in the UK is so much more expensive. That's about it. Really. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but everything else is cheaper, but the cost of fuel. Whew, yeah. Okay. Nice. So we're around here in America. We're not actually doing that bad, <laughs> I guess. Oh yeah, your cost of fuel cheap. Wow, I, now three years on into living into America, I'm like, oh geez, seven dollars a gallon, you know? <laughs> oh, the, and that's how many prices basically at the moment. Like, oh no, why? I always put premium petrol into my car. And so, ah, oh sorry, gas. Yeah, to translate that one. <laughs> Oh, we will forgive you for uh, using different colloquialisms. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But uh, so you uh, started out as a uh, bartender at 18, which uh, is young by American standard, uh, working in restaurants. Did I get that right? Yeah. Okay. You know, I was cleaning dishes before I was um, 18 and could serve behind the bar. So for me, the still the best place in any restaurant or hotel is in the kitchen. I love working in the kitchen. Oh, really? And cleaning dishes. Cleaning dishes is one of the, in my eyes, one of the best jobs in a whole hotel. Or it's carefree. You just get on with it, but you're in the kitchen. So you have kitchen banter, and I learned so much from being in kitchens over the years. Love it. Now, my time as a dishwasher, I have to admit, it was a little bit nerve-wracking for me because uh, I was working in a uh, corporate restaurant, and I think I'm getting ahead. I think I'm doing well. All of a sudden, wham, dinner rush, and then all of a sudden, all these dishes come out, and I'm like, ah, you know. But uh, I never really found a good rhythm to keep up with everything, and it, it actually kind of um, stressed me out from time to time. Uh, but you found, like, it sounds like you almost found Zen while while doing. Oh, it. I uh, look at my my first job was with like a lunatic head chef that like at any given moment you could be getting hit with something, or certainly with me being cheeky at sixteen. I was deservedly getting hit by things. Um, but then when I moved to France, uh, sorry, Austria, um, I got on with the head chef straight away. I was cleaning dishes just to go snowboarding. And he, he said, Neil, you can be a commie. I, I don't really want you cleaning dishes. I'll start to teach you like the basics of what chefing is. And, and I learned a lot of like just raw fundamentals on, how to cut, how flavors work, how to balance elements out. And it was fantastic. And I think that it always made front of house a lot easier because you knew what was going on in the kitchen. You could speak to chef and not piss them off. You know, now that is a talent. Middle thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, or really piss them off when you wanted to. You, know, you, could, you, could, you could poke the bear whenever you wanted, but like it was generally better that, you know, I was managing a pass and talking through that way instead of my staff coming up. And it was all learned from being in a kitchen and learn, you know, so, so much. And then your work ethic changed as well. You know, long shifts in a kitchen, not seeing anyone. It's cool. I enjoyed it a lot. Mm. Yeah, wow. You've been all over the restaurant then. You know, um... Every, everything apart from, um, you know, doing rooms, um, you know, um, servicing rooms. I've done every other job in a hotel, night porter. I was a duty manager at one stage, F&B manager. Um, but the only reason I couldn't do housekeeping is still to this day, I can't make a bed properly. So it was always <laughs> going to kill me that part. Now, uh, working all those different positions all over the hospitality industry, it seems like, uh, did you do you have like a soft spot when you, you're seeing a server maybe having a bad night or they're having a little trouble keeping up? Do you do you have a soft spot for them? Um, not so much a soft spot for if someone's struggling or they're busy. Like I got beasted behind the bar. I worked busy, busy bars and had to like you had to work hard. Like you had no option. One, there was probably probably no bar back. You might not have had that. You could have been doing your glasses and uh, dishes all all yourself. You have to work hard in some places. So if someone's got like, fair enough, if it's, you know, they're getting screwed and there's nothing that can be done. I'm like, oh, it's, 
hey, we've all been there in the trenches and you should just really laugh it off in my eyes. Um, but then there is times where you just look around the bar and go, oh, you poor person, this is the <laughs> perfect storm. And then, But really for me, that, you know, that, that struggles that management are having with staff, you know, I'd, so I always feel sorry for staff that one, haven't been equipped to do, or, or to be, be ready for their service, whether or not, and especially at the moment, you know, people with experience, it's so hard, you know, so many people have left the fine industry that, you know, seeing these new staff in this, in this moment, you're like, oh, you're new, you've not properly been like battered yet by customers, you know, you haven't, <laughs> you, you haven't done a 90 hour week yet, like, oh, it's going to come, uh, <laughs> like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, just wait. Uh, yeah, there, there have been times where I've sat in a restaurant, I mean, doing this podcast, I've, I do have a soft spot for some people, but uh, gone into busy restaurants and seen that, you know, oh, they're exceptionally busy. That's why, you know, that extra ranch didn't make it to my plate or, you know, I'm understandable on some things like that. But there was one restaurant where I walked in right before the lunch rush and the girl behind the bar didn't see me because she had her uh, headphones in. Maybe, hopefully, listening to Hey Bartender podcast. I don't know, but <laughs> but uh, I I was I knew I was there right before lunch rush, and she's got her headphones in and didn't see me, and I'm like, oh, you're asking for trouble. But oh, if someone has an earpod in their ear in a bar, in a rest anywhere that I'm wanting, I'm a way to try and get served in. I'm probably going to walk out. I've got no interest in seeing that. Why, why would you ever need one of those in your ear when you're working behind the bar? Yeah, uh, so you, you did time as a manager, so if you caught one of your uh, servers doing that, uh, you know, had an ear pod in one ear, what, what would happen? Uh, it, well, it would be hit out their ear. It would be, a, as, as we say back home, it would be a clip around the lug, which would be hitting them and it popping out probably. However, luckily for anyone that had... Uh, had to work under me as a manager in my younger days, there was not such a thing as AirPods. Yeah. So it wouldn't have ever been a problem. The worst thing that could anyone probably ever did was come in or, or didn't come in because they got arrested and they were in a jail cell. That was about as bad as it got really for us. But yeah, it, was, it wasn't the, it wasn't the same modern problems. Telephones weren't really the same issue either. About when was this? Oh gosh, I'm now 35. So gosh, yes, I, I started behind the bar 17 years ago. Just about half my life has been uh, uh, handed over to this the, the industry of hospitality, which is great. Yeah, uh, when I was working behind the bar, iPhones didn't even exist yet. I, I had a Nokia 5100 series, you know, so we didn't feel the need to have a, something in our ear at all times, or something just because we didn't have access to music podcasts. And I wasn't that popular yeah. in order to feel like I needed to be connected the whole time. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so from moving on from Scotland, uh, where did you go? Oh, gosh, I lived in Austria for a little while. Um, and then once I came back, um, I moved out to like the Scottish Highlands. So I, actually going 360, my friend's uh, father bought a bar in the countryside. And then I ended up staying up there for about six years um, as my base in the countryside. And then I was offered uh, the chance to get to Singapore. 
Now, uh, last thing I'm going to ask about Scotland before we talk about Singapore is the countryside as beautiful, beautiful as it looks in the movies? I think so. I think so. I, um, I've always wondered. I, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big homeboy. Like, I'm very proud of the fishing, the shooting, the golf courses, the mountains that we have in Scotland. And, yeah, that's kind of, that's really the thing I miss. Like, I've been living in cities for the last seven years, and just being out in the Scottish Highlands is heaven for me. That's yeah. what I'm going to be doing for the next few weeks, pretty much. Hiding away from big city activities and being in the countryside. That sounds amazing. The Belvini, the sweet toast of American oak, 12-year-old Scotch whiskey, is available on CW Spirits. It was inspired to create a fruitier, sweeter, and smooth-tasting Scotch whiskey. Kelsey McKenzie decided to import virgin oak barrels from Kentucky and store the Bel- and store the Belvini, the sweet toast of American oak Scotch whiskey, 12-year-old, in them and complete texture, taste, and toasting. The Belvini, the sweet toast of American oak Scotch whiskey, 12-year-old Scotch whiskey, is filled with Belvini aged in ex-bourbon barrels. You can get yours at www.cwspirits.com. And remember to use promo code HEYBARTENDER5 at purchase and get 5% off your entire order. That's www.cwspirits.com, HEYBARTENDER5. So you moved on to Singapore. Uh, what did you do while you were there? Um, I, I got offered the Balbani job. Okay. So I was the I met um, I met the head of commercial for Southeast Asia in Scotland, and after I, I made some cocktails and then presented about any thirty, she asked me what I was doing. A very general question: What are you doing in life? If you're available, I'd love to, or, or you're interested, I'd love to have a conversation with you about moving to Singapore. So a few job interviews later and. Three, four months, I was off to Singapore as the Balbani ambassador for Southeast Asia. Oh. So that was how I got over to Singapore. Same role as I'm doing just now, but a very different market in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Now, was there a culture shock when you moved from, from the move to Scotland to Singapore? Um, you know, when I, when I look back, I was exceptionally fortunate at the time that I got to Singapore. So um, for the listeners out there that that might not know very much about Singapore other than everyone gets scared about how strict their laws are, which is not fully true, that when I got there, it was celebrating its 50th year anniversary as being a country. Also, their founding father, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, was passing away, which basically inundated me with information and knowledge about Singapore, Singapore the people, how the country, an incredibly proud people, how they got to where they are in just 50 years. So I was so fortunate that, and as well, that the team around me, um, all Singaporeans, looked at me just like, whoa, white boy, eh? you've never been to Asia. We've got to like look after you because it could go real wrong real quickly. And I had, uh, you know, such, uh, you know, great colleagues are now great friends that took time to educate the boy from the Scottish Highlands on just Asian goings on. So it wasn't 
I, I, in, from what I can remember, I don't think it was as bad and I, as shocking as it was. It was, it was probably more of a shock moving to Asia, uh, moving to America from Asia. Oh, really? In, okay. In, on, on, on levels of just how, how different things in America were in comparison to what I was used to in Scotland or Asia. Now, getting to your current job uh, with Balvini, being an ambassador for them, you said it started, you presented a 30-year and then the person yeah. just all of a sudden wanted to talk to you. A little bit of background. Um, yeah. So I was going to be, I, I was helping a friend who has a pop-up bar company. And he's always worked because we're from very close to the whiskey uh, world and Speyside and the Highlands. He does, did pop-up bars for a lot of the distilleries, big distilleries. Whenever a distillery asked, I would be, I'd get first pick. I, I came. I worked in whiskey bars. Whiskey was my passion, and he was someone that yeah, yeah he could trust. Adrian Gomez has now got three bars or so in Aberdeen. I worked with him when I was younger, and we were we were managing neighbouring bars. And that night, there was guests from Southeast Asia, Malaysian distributors, and the lady that ran commercial for Southeast Asia. And I was doing the welcome cocktails for them at the distillery. So I made up some cocktails and said, Neil, do you know about Benny 30? And would you feel comfortable hosting a tasting on it? Well, of course. I have, uh, I, I used to have it in my whiskey bar. So I, I know it. Can I refresh my memory? So I just had one nose left. Oh, yeah. That's that, Balvenie 30. Put it down, poured them, and then did a tasting of the 30. Probably didn't know what I needed to know about the brand. Like, what did that conversation go off now? But I blagged it. And as they were walking through for dinner, she presented her card and she went and, and explained, I've been looking for an ambassador for the Balvenie in Southeast Asia for about a year. If you would like, or I would be very interested in having a conversation with you about you trying to fill that role. And then that's how I got over to Asia. So due to your, you said you're a whiskey fan. So you, you had a large catalog and memory of every, uh, of a bunch of different whiskeys and scotches at the time. And that, uh, that yeah, knowledge, so, yeah, that knowledge really paid off for you <laughs> eventually. Yeah. I opened, uh, I was part of a team that opened a hotel, um, that had a relatively big whiskey collection in it. And then me and, uh, me and the bar manager put probably another 200, 250 whiskeys on top. I was 21, 22 years old when that was happening and we had 500 whiskeys in a glass room that at some point we had good knowledge of everything. Like even today, if I'm doing tastings on like, you know, get the chance to talk about other distilleries with people, there is so many random facts about all these distilleries in Scotland <laughs> that are still in there, which just come out from time to time. Tell me about Belvini. What's the back, uh, what's the backstory on them? Um, so, the, the, the story starts essentially five years after William Grant and his sons, or William Grant and sons, which is the company I work for, William Grant, his sons, and the rest of the family, two daughters, with the help of a stonemason, built Glenfiddich by hand. But five years after that, they had the opportunity to buy a mansion to basically protect the water rights around Glenfiddich distillery. And that mansion was called New Balvenie Castle. And it had a load of land around it, big farm and estate. And William Grant had the opportunity to buy that. It protected his water, 
but the house itself was perfect for a part of process and whiskey making before uh, the maltings process, changing the barley into malted barley ready to, for us to process it. At the same time as that, an opportunity came around that second-hand distillery equipment was available to William Grant. So he bought that and built the Belvani distillery round the house. That house got knocked down in the early 20s, maybe uh, late teens of the 1900s. And a custom-made floor malting was built just after that. And the site has not changed since. That same family still own the business. The sixth generation of the family are filtering into the business now. I had the pr- privilege of working with some of them in uh, Southeast Asia. And, you know, the real difference and I, with the Balvenie and, and really many other distilleries in Scotland is that we make our whiskey in exceptionally, like, honest fashion, that we have people making our whiskey. And when you go to the distillery, Every part of whiskey making process is done by someone. And we champion, like a lot of the rest of the Scots whiskey industry, these legends, these people that worked at the distillery for, in our case, up to 50, uh, sorry, 65 years with Dennis McVeigh or Coppersmith. But you have all these characters, but you also have these master craftsmen, but apprentices. And these master craftsmen are passing on the art of making, making whiskey. And the way we make our whiskey isn't the cheapest. It's not the most cost effective because we have humans making it. We really feel that that is worth the difference in quality. And yeah, it's, it, it's beautiful just to see whiskey made in just such an honest way. So yeah. Uh, there's no uh, mechanical. It's all done by hand. There's always people involved with it. Yes, yeah, yeah. The, the the difference really between um, the distillery is every every part of process. There is people doing it. Whether it's the Wiseman family that run our farm, whether it's the chaps in the floor maltings, fermentation. We have our own coppersmiths that maintain our distillery. And wow. um, so all of it was, you know, originally powered by water that was coming through, um, but now electricity powers it, and we have every element the full um, start to finish of uh, making making single malt Scotch whiskey from farm to bottling percentage done on the site. So that was me kind of seeing how much knowledge that they bestowed on you. Of course, they want you to know the company history. Do you, do you have to sit down when you become an ambassador? Do you have to sit down and study, study, study before you get out there? So I, I would have had like a better than average whiskey knowledge because I was a whiskey geek, mm. but then you start. So I had the, the great privilege of spending a lot of time with these people in the distillery from people like Dennis McBain, as I mentioned before, a coppersmith, but David Stewart, a whiskey maker. So you'll see on every bottle of the Balvenie that you have David, a gentleman's signature, David Charles Stewart. And I spent weeks with David. And what you learn from a whiskey, like the longest serving whiskey maker in the industry from years gone by, parts of process that is just so unique. It's amazing. And then finally, well, not finally, because I still learn all the time about whiskey. They, the company put me on a, a course, the General Certificate in Distillation. 
And then that makes you think about everything differently again. I had a good knowledge, then I got Balvenified, and then I got GCG and all very different. Uh, you said you spent time in the distillery itself and got shown around. Oh, am I wrong? All the time. Oh, all the time. Okay. For, I've had months, probably months of time I've spent at the distillery now. Um, so give me a little bit of the experience of being in the distillery itself. Now, I've... I've always been curious because when you walk by certain factories or something like that, certain smells come from them and you understand that this happens there, this happens there. Well, you being uh, what you referred to as a whiskey geek, did the the odors and aromas of the whiskey, did it, it does it in, uh, encompass you pretty much when you first walk in there? Um. Depending on what's getting produced, so some, you know, it's, it's very rare that we'll be making peated whiskey at the Balvenie, but once a year we do. Um, there, You can smell peated liquid coming off, but distilleries, depending on how they make their whiskey, will basically have different smells. You know you're in a whiskey-making place, but it's when you get into the crux of the distillery itself. And, like, certainly for me with, with the old warehouses on site at the Balvenie and Glenfiddich, which is all one site in Dufton where we make our whiskey. It's a smell in the old warehouses that was my favorite. Mm. And the old warehouses, the liquid, and the liquid that cut, and, and, and you know, especially with older examples of what we do with the Balvenie, there is a special smell that comes from these warehouses that, is a romanticism, and I don't think words particularly describe them nicely. When I think of old Dunnage warehouses, I'm thinking about wet, and uh, like dirty, mildew, dusty. But then that smell makes me smile, and that that smell of aged whiskey, and some of those warehouses and some of the special places that David's work with oak, and you know, encompassing different flavor profiles from different casks. Those smells in there just bring me to those kind of cold, wet warehouses in Scotland that there's so much fun in. Is it, uh, like like coming home, it sounds like, uh, uh, the way you, that you're emoting about it. Oh, yeah. It, it's it's fantastic. But yeah, just, it's, oh, it's one of truly, truly one of my favorite places to be in the world is Dufton and getting to work from the distillery. And because it's home, I've had more than most time at the distillery, really. So I've been so, so lucky. When you go into a situation where you are presenting Belvini, do you present them in a certain order? Do you have them te- uh, test the the 12 year, then move on to the, uh, the 14? Uh, is, how do you, how do you present it? So really for myself, it's how, what story I'm telling on the evening or the afternoon or the morning, that the story is everything basically. And we are so fortunate that we make such a variety of different liquids within the w- within the distillery that we can pick and choose depending on what's available in market. But really, for myself, I'm always starting with a Balvenie Twelve Double Wood. It's always it's been my go-to single malt for way way before I started even working with the company, and then we go on to where it uh, takes us. You know. Some some tastings might finish, you know, back in the day, they just finished on a 17. Now a lot of focus, if we have liquid, is finishing on the new Balvenie 25, 13, 40 that's just uh, been released. Right. So, it, you know, there's such a spectrum. And depending on where 
you know, really, really, really what the customer base is and what level they've got, it can, it can vary massively. To me, it comes with a starting point. And, you know, for a person that is not as well-versed on scotches or whiskeys, uh, I just usually am interested, where do I start? And uh, a lot of a lot of people, such as yourself, the easiest way is to start with the 12 and uh, move on, move up from there and then, you know, kind of study your palate, I guess. Yeah. And, and, you know, for the, for throughout the years, I'll throw some stereotype back at you, <laughs> um, like behind the bar, behind the bar in Scotland, you know, majority of people that are ordering single malt scots, it's not Scottish people. We drink like as a nation, they drink vodka, gin, and then blended scotch. It's not, people aren't just tucking into bottles of Valvani left, right, and center at the bar. So it's usually tourists and and really the, you know, in in the countryside, the majority of your tourists are going to be American tourists. So when I was behind the bar, people say, oh, it's my first time to Scotland. What scotch should I drink? And I always, always picked up Valvani 12 doubles. Mm. You know, it gives you so much. It has a, a, a la- layers and layers of complexity that's I don't think found in many many other entry level single malt scotches. But it also gives you flavors which are found throughout the range, from a you know really from a twelve double wood to a twenty five to a fifty. There's a, a style, a house style that David's nurtured over the years, and the twelve double woods with honey and vanilla and then finished in Spanish oak casks gives you just a lovely rounded uh, taste and very easy. And, and they're all flavors that are easy for people to enjoy that coupled with the fact that the Balvenie's alcohol probably isn't quite as aggressive or as apparent as some other great facilities out there. So it's a little bit softer. People often call it smoother, but uh, yeah. not a term we use in Scotch whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that was just, that would be an American uh, term when it comes to oh, this uh, Scotch or this whiskey is really smooth going down. Oh no, no, I can't can't say it's just Americans. It's all over the oh, world. Okay, <laughs> but just whiskey people don't use that term so often. Oh, it, smooth. Why are you drinking whiskey then? It's not supposed to be smooth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I mean. Uh, some Scot- Scotch drinkers out here, they insist that it be a single malt, but they pair it with some kind of big, really disgusting smelling cigar and just sit there and be proud of themselves that they're drinking a Scotch and having a cigar at the same time. But uh, yeah, that those are the people that will try to explain to you the, uh, the essence of uh, the Scotch and in uh, uh, it's nothing the way, like the way you just described Balvini. Uh, yeah, that, uh, again, one of the, one of the fun parts of my job is getting told about Scotch whiskey. Got to love it when the consumer is telling me about it. Mm. Really fun. So let's talk about uh, the Balvini marriages. Uh-huh. This just got released, from what I'm told. Yeah, so um, the Balvini rare marriages. Is, am I am is, I pronouncing is, it is wrong? Re- I'm sorry. Bel, Bel, I keep saying Balvini. Is it Balvini? Honestly, both sound correct to me. Um, okay, yeah, I'm just like, making sure. People in Scotland don't, you know, people in Scotland have the same issue about like how things are pronounced. I'm, you know, I'm the Balvenie. It's I don't even think what I'm saying or what version I'm saying, but you said it in my eyes. You say it correctly both ways. I know what you're talking about. Okay. So, so okay. So the the marriages uh, that has just been released. 
these are very well aged scotches from what I read. Uh, now, could you please uh, tell me about that? Yeah, so we've always, as you know, from for as long as I can remember with the brand, but really dating back to like 87, we were the first ever company to release a 50 year old expression. And because we're family owned, we're exceptionally fortunate that the distillery at times has made either too much whiskey or has not felt the need to bottle everything and to hold on to stocks to allow them to age essentially. And one, one thing that, with having those fantastic socks sitting in our warehouse, another important thing kind of to remember is how David Stewart, our whiskey maker, our malt master, really shaped what Scotch is and certainly our brand. And one of the things that David Stewart did when he was 29 years old, and David Stewart was, you know, was awarded the master blender's job for the company at 29 years old, very young start to it. But with his first meeting with the family, he asked them to purchase enough oak to make these these vessels, marrying tons. And a marrying ton for us is about a 2,000 litre uh, Portuguese oak vessel, like a big tube, tub, basically. Big, big tub. Um, and David, before he bottles his whiskey, before he lowers the alcohol on it, he will empty individual casks into marrying tons. And these marrying tons allow the flavor of the whiskies to combine themselves, to settle, and oxygen plays a massive part in it. And emptying these casks just lets into this vessel, letting oxygen kind of soften them. And that's really what the rare marriage is about. And still to this day, no other distillery will spend so much time marrying, letting different casks oxidize and settle than David does with the Balvenie. And so much so that when you, and you know, at 29 years old, he was asking for quite a considerable amount of money's worth of wood to build these space and warehouses. But now to this day, every one of our whiskies is made like that. Uh, from Glenfiddich to Tullamore Jews to Monkey Shoulder, it's all made in this way. And the family really got behind David. So this is really, uh, the Rare Marriages is really celebrating some of the amazing castle we have in our warehouse, but then also the fact that David came up with this process to make his blends originally more richer and robust in the glass for the consumer to enjoy. While taking that single malt, again, it makes it richer, more robuster, and it gives you just a more rounded, better balance flavor profile on the single malt scotch whiskey. So it's really about that. And this year we were, and, and this year we've been lucky enough to release um, a new 25 with that, that way of making whiskey. Now, yeah. Uh, the way you talk about that, I mean, I've kind of thought this before when you plan on, uh, you really have to plan ahead and it's a risk, but a, uh, potentially an excellent investment when you plan on letting something age for 25, 40, 50 years, it, it, it can be a risk, can't it? Well, you, if, and, and this is, and, and this is why I have to emphasize I'm a whiskey geek, that the more that you look into different times and, and different years and different distilleries, there's history there. And if you look back in particular, just as the whiskey industry as a whole, 
just like kind of about the time I was born, so 35 years ago now, the whiskey industry was in the doldrums. Nobody was drinking whiskey. And really all it was going for, like we were selling loads of the single malts. It was not the market that it was to this day. So when the industry is on such a low, you're not making a lot of whiskey. So that's how, that's why these propositions that David can combine these tasks together in the rare marriages are really something special and very unique because some of these, these casts should still be in our warehouses just because of the time they were made because it was so rare to get these casts lasting so long. And, and there's, there's lovely levels of history on how, the, you know, at different decades, different years, what was made. So when you look four decades on or 25 years later, it's like, oh, what's in here now? You know, it's, mm. it's quite, it's, it's really crazy. On, 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 on really the, the art that David was taught in blending, how he manages to get flavor profiles so similar year after year with the releases. Now, uh, is it kind of, uh, does it make you feel kind of weird that you're looking at a, uh, a cask that's older than you are? I'm, I'm only starting to like, feel like the age that I'm at now, like it all, it was all good when I was 20, uh, eight years old, starting <laughs> the brand ambassador job, fresh face. And, uh, I was like, oh, everything's older than me now. Well, I'll just have a 30, it's older than me starting to get a little bit harder to get whiskey that is that like bit older but there's when you when you see the cask getting rolled in for emptying say for a 30 year old and you're counting the numbers that are going in you're like oh god what what was i doing 30 years ago (laughs) it's it's amazing to see those ones and you know we've got some incredibly special casks in the warehouse that are a lot older as well and you just think oh gosh how has that thing ever managed to last that long yeah, when you're talking about 50-year scotch, it's like, that was five years before I was born when that got put in the warehouse. And, you know, uh, and it, it's I just find it kind of fascinating a little bit. <laughs> and, I, and I think another thing with like the age of, like, scotch whiskey it, and, and something that only being, you know, in, at, as an ambassador, getting to see so much behind the scenes that really made me think is, the age on a bottle, whether it's your of any twenty five or thirty, that's the youngest whiskey that's gone into the mix. Mm. And when we talk about age of the whiskey, it's the amount of time that the spirit has been aged in oak vessels in the warehouses in Scotland for. However, sometimes the flavor profile is not quite correct because of stock issues and and because of these stock constraints that the whiskey maker and David Stewart. I have to take some older liquid to get the flavor profile he wants. And, I, and I've certainly in the past in 30s, when they've been rolling in, I'm like, oh, okay, so you've done your maths wrong. These are more like 35 years old, maybe 38 years old. Going into a 30, oh, we need it for flavor profile. Oh. So it's, it, it's amazing how, you know, our whiskey makers build up these flavor profiles in their hands to sample to get something that... It, it tastes so wonderful every time and, and, and still has that flavor profile that we love about the Belvenny. So the marriages that I was informed about, the Belvenny 25, age 25 years, 48% alcohol, uh, ABV, non-chilled filter of natural color. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Wow. 
it's a real treat um, <laughs> if you can get your hands on it. Um, it's it becomes and and our our distillery in particular, I think, once you break, jump over that twenty one year old mark, the whiskeys start to become hugely, hugely complex, interesting, and fun. And over, and I really think the best way to describe anything over 25 years is you start to pick up layers and layers and layers of different flavors. And when I first had the Balvenie 25, I, I, I still don't even have a bottle in the house myself. You know, that's how hard it is to come by. I've got some small samples. But when we were first uh, doing work with it and looking at it, I sat down with a caviar partner that I work with and we were pairing it with, we were trying to work for a perfect pairing on it. And as we were sitting there kind of discussing the whiskey, it was amazing how many layers just peel off, you know, from, from the initial sip of something as, you know, as uh, put together as well as a 25. It starts, but then it moves on. And we're always going to have those classic Balvenie notes of honey, vanilla there, but then time changes it and just makes it so much more decadent, regal. You start to pick up fruit character that shines through. And really, it, it, it's hats off to um, David Stewart and, and Kelsey McCackney, his apprentice, that they still manage, over with, with so long in oak casks, still manage to get classic flavors of the Balvenie shining through on, 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 the, on the mixture that they're putting into that cask. And for that bottle, sorry. And next up in the selection of rare marriage is the 30-year. It says, Mary's traditional American and European oak casks that have matured over decades, crafting the sweetest and most honeyed expression. And it's a very expensive bottle. Yeah, and, and you know, the Balvenie 30 is a, is a whiskey that is the reason why I'm, I'm getting the privilege to speak to you. So it's a whiskey that's incredibly close to my heart in every way. So I, and it's really hard for me to describe a Balvenie 30 without, uh, with people knowing that I'm the Balvenie ambassador, because every time I have it, if I'm, if I'm hosting a tasting with a group for it, I kind of don't want to be speaking to them. I want to be sitting in the corner by myself, sipping this liquid because the layers and flavors that it gives you, is one thing with a 25, but the older you go, every, you know, on the statements, the more and more the flavors develop. Some people might find the flavors developing too much, but for like a Balvenie 30, when you jump back into the history of the distillery and those casks that they were filling at those times, when you sit there with the liquid, it just brings such a smile to my face. Um, and it, it, it's a whiskey that, you know, as you mentioned, quite expensive, but for bartender friends out there, it, it's a whiskey that you'd always have the confidence that you're not going to annoy a customer with. And I, as you said, when you were talking to your friends before, they're, they're maybe a little bit more versed in whiskey, when they talk about the Balvenie, it brings a smile to people's faces. No, definitely Because does. the quality is there from a 12, but... And, and, and really, yeah, I'm a cheap Scotsman. I like having cheaper whiskeys. I like the fire of a younger whiskey, like a 12 or a 14. But when you get into like the Rare Marriage series and the 30s, 
it just gives you and keeps on giving and giving and giving more and more. And each year, because of the age of the whiskey and a lot of so many variables of maturation in these oak uh, oak casks, you get something that is subtly different every year. And it, it just yeah, drink, getting to drink anything over twenty years old still to this day is an honor for me. Most definitely. Uh, I, I might cut that part out where I said it's an expensive bottle. Uh, I felt like I was being a little disrespectful there. But, no, uh, no, no, no. We are we are shamelessly expensive. <laughs> we know we play in the, we 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 play in the top tier of that. Okay. <laughs> but, but, uh, some of the, yeah, some of this will be edited out. But it, and finally, the um, Belveni uh, Forty. Now, uh, this one it says is the boldest character in the range, holding an intense honey oaked and rich fruity flavor, layering both sweetness and spice. Please describe that for us. Um, well, I, I'm, I'm good. It's it's so rare for me to get my hands on a forty that that description sounds fantastic. I would love to add to it because I've never had this one yet. Oh. Um, but I, I can certainly talk back in the past that the this whiskey is so rare that we had to fly our whiskey maker to Singapore for the first time I got to try it. And because I explained the 30, you know, I love so much and I struggled to see how with 10 years extra aging, the whiskey could get any better age. It definitely does not make a whiskey better. It gives you different layers of flavor. And sometimes if whiskeys are poorly made, you lose a lot of the actual flavor of the whiskey. And as, as I said, many times on any tasting, honey and vanilla and delicate fruits is how David's house style works. And I, and I struggled to see that with so many layers of that in the 30, that 40 could be an improvement on it. Mm. And then I poured it and I was looking at David in the eyes and I nosed it and it was just, oh, okay. I get it now. This has everything the 30 has but just with a little splash of nitrous in it, just boofed up a little bit more, just in your face. The alcohol is a little bit more delicate because of the time in the cask, but then it just plays and plays and plays. And I was, David is, um, you know, probably, you know, it's a brand ambassador's job to be hosting and speaking. And David was a little bit quieter. I was struggling for words to describe it because the flavor just gave and gave and gave so much. Um, it's really, really something, you know, it, it, and so it's so hard to start to describe old spirit in for, that has been aged for 40 years because it's so unique, so, so unique. And it, we're so fortunate in Scotland that we have the climate to mature with our spirit in that way and then to have David Stewart marrying them all together to become something so beautiful. Oh, that's amazing. So all of these are available on the market right now. Are they available in America? And they are indeed. Yes, they are indeed. Okay. Well, great. Well, we're coming up on last call right now. That's uh, towards the end of the show. I want to thank you so much for taking time for being on Hey Bartender podcast. You were uh, very entertaining, very educational. That that's uh, the most important thing because I know nothing. Uh, I beginner's guide to I'm like before the big beginner's guide to whiskey and scotch. But uh, thank you so much for uh, letting us know about everything in Bel uh, Belvini. 
well, we'll we'll make. I, I think you've progressed from that beginner stage already, and uh, we'll make sure we sit down with you and we can we can discuss and uh, get dive into uh, plenty of whiskey to help you uh, understand it all. Next time I'm in Colorado, let's get it organized. Oh, that that sounds uh, sounds like fun. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. I look forward to it. Thanks. And that's it for Hey Bartender Podcast this week. Thank you so much to Neil Strachan for being on the show and telling us about Belvini. Uh, you know what? I learned so much about this thing. And, you know, it is it was a lot of fun. You have to agree with me. This man is so passionate about his product and his he calls himself a whiskey geek. And you, it's so much fun listening to so much uh, passion come out of somebody that is talking about something that they love. It's just incredible. As usual, big thanks to Laura Hope and the Arctones for their song, Dr. Bartender. I've been using for her theme song since this show's... And, well, not since the show started, but the early days. Uh, go check out their music. They're available on Spotify, Apple Music. And you know what? Check out their website, laurahopeandthearctones.com. You, they might be playing near you, and you just don't know it. Also, don't forget to check out www.heybartenderpodcast.com. You can go check out some of the t-shirts I got on sale there and a few other knickknacks. Also, check out the latest episodes. And, you know, I'm planning on building up the website a little bit more, but we'll see what happens. You can follow me on social media. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Uh, I've been making a lot of drinks on TikTok lately. you got to check some of this stuff out. Uh, All of them are at... Hey, Bartender Podcast, easy to find. And don't forget to go to Country Wine and Spirits online. That's cwspirits.com and check out all of the spirits that they have on sale there. They have everything that you expect, plus a lot more stuff that you've got to try. I'll be featuring some of that stuff on my TikTok channel very soon. All you have to do is go to cwspirits.com and remember, use promo code HeyBartender5, you get 5% off your entire order. But that's it, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Hey Bartender Podcast. Oh, new episodes every Saturday around 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. And remember, most importantly, say it with me, people, if you can. Lots of love, lots of sex, lots of happiness. And remember, don't take any shit from anyone. Good night. What do you mean it's let's go? I just got here.